welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. My name is Kirsten Lopez, and I'll be your host for this episode. On today's episode, we'll be chatting about life as an archaeologist. Today, we have Emily Tabor to talk about her career as an archaeologist and her work with Search and Rescue. And filling out the panel today are Chelsea Slotten and Emily Long. Thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. Always happy to be here. I'm excited that we have Emily today. This is going to be really fun to talk to her all about her cool career and all the fun things she does. <laughs> yeah, thank you for yes. having me on the podcast. Listeners, get ready for the confusion of two Emilys. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I do have also on board with us uh, a tiny uh, who may or may not uh, pop in here and there. So as we go forward and you hear small babbling sounds, that's that's who you're who you're hearing. He's just trying to contribute because their archaeologists are parents too. <laughs> and similarly, my cat has joined us because she just wanders in and out of the room. If I close her out, then she will howl at the door. Uh, so you might periodically hear her like nuzzling into the microphone to purr at you or something. Uh, not nearly the same <laughs> as having a child to care for. She is basically a, she's like a fuzzy house. Well, hey, we're getting the full ASMR experience. <laughs> Get baby coos and kitty purrs. It's a good day. It is yeah. a good day. Emily, if you want to tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do, just to get our listeners started. Uh, yeah, so I have been doing archaeology for uh, somewhere around 14 years, I think. Um, a lot of that, I, I started out uh, shovel bumming as a tech, as many people do, but uh, covered most of the states west of the Rocky Mountains doing some kind of, of field work and then kind of came back to to land in the Pacific Northwest, did my master's work at Portland State University, uh, studying fish remains in general. I'm a zooarchaeologist, but fishes is one of my specialties. Uh, I've worked for the feds on and off. Right now I'm working for a small firm located in the Portland area. And as much as I like my zooarchaeology hat, I don't get to wear it that frequently. Most of the time I'm just a general project archaeologist, like get a project, do the background research, go out, do the field work, come back, finish writing it up, and then on to the next. Uh, so that's most of what I do career-wise at this point, uh, I, because I do not like sitting still, I also have a lot of volunteer stuff that I get into. Um, so I'm on one search and rescue team. I'm working on getting certified for another search and rescue team. And then I also am uh, one of the client coordinators for uh, Oregon's branch of the Alta Heritage Foundation. So we go into uh, areas that have been impacted by wildfires where people have lost homes and we pair archaeologists with specifically trained forensic dogs and their dog handlers and recover cremated human remains for the, uh, for the people who've been impacted by those fires. So those are hmm. some of the volunteer things that I get up to and it means that I don't get a lot of sleep and I give up a lot of weekends, but 
A, I love doing it, and B, I also realize that I need to be careful when I complain about giving up nights and weekends when I'm talking with someone who is holding a small baby. (laughs) (laughs) But those sound like incredible volunteer opportunities that I don't think a lot of people may be aware of and that that you get to do with your archaeology skills outside of your job. Cause it's like, yeah, I enjoy like teaching kids and stuff about archeology span outside of my job, but man, you're like going out there and finding cremated remains and helping people and stuff. That's really cool. And I do wonder a bit, particularly with the, the search and rescue, how your archeology span training plays into that. Because I imagine, you know, when you're surveying, you're looking for things in the landscape that don't look natural. And I imagine that that would come in really useful doing search and rescue. It actually, it does. Uh, So one of the search and rescue teams that I'm on uh, with Columbia County. So they are, as far as I am aware, they are the only county-based search and rescue group in the state of Oregon that can do this. Uh, Of course, now someone somewhere will fact check me on it. But uh, they're the, as far as I know, they're the only ones in the state who are allowed to interact at crime scenes and who can help manage crime scenes until other relevant people show up. Most search and rescue teams don't do that. But uh, for example, a couple weeks ago, I woke up at four in the morning so that I could drive out to a part of Columbia County and help do an evidence search. Uh, and the main part of that was we were given specific things that we needed to look for in, in this area. And then we just set up a grid pattern and started combing over it. And it is in some ways, it's very similar to archeology. span And in other ways, it is very different because it, it goes at a much slower pace. You're standing shoulder to shoulder and it's usually everyone takes a step and the person who's leading the team gives you a couple moments to look around and then says something like forward and then everyone takes another step. So it's, you're literally just going one step at a time and looking at your surroundings for tiny bits of things that shouldn't be there. But I mean, you're absolutely Mm -hmm. right that that overlaps pretty much directly with, with surveying in the rest of archeology span is you're looking for stuff that isn't part of the natural world. And I also want to say that I have some hesitations about even what I just said about, oh, we look for things that aren't part of the natural world because of course, you know, humans are part of the natural world, but you know what I mean? That's a big can of worms. I just wanted to acknowledge that like that, that distinction can be a little misleading, but. um, Mm -hmm. Mother nature didn't put the candy wrapper there. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I may have wished when I was a child that Snickers bars <laughs> grew on trees, but I have yet to see that, that actually happened. Maybe for Christmas this year. <laughs> so first, one thing that I want to clarify that this is a little bit outside of the realm of archaeology, but it's something that I run into occasionally, and it was a misconception that I heard a lot when I was through hiking the PCT this last year, and that made me kind of sad is that there is this idea that 
search and rescue, like if you call search and rescue, you're going to be landed with a big bill. And there are some states which are enacting what I essentially think of as dumbass laws where (laughs) you willfully put yourself in this bad situation. And so, yes, you are responsible for, for some of the cost of it since it's the county that generally foots the budget. But what happens is at, I think it's mostly at the federal level, it's mandated that each county have a search and rescue force or group. So it's usually operated out of the sheriff's office of a particular county. There are a few people on staff who are paid, and then everyone else is a trained volunteer. So that means when you have canine dog handlers, they handle their dog's costs. They aren't reimbursed by the state. When you have people who are uh, mounted search and rescue, like the Columbia team has what they call the posse, which is uh, horseback mounted search and rescue. What? They man- that is cool. Yep. <laughs> I know. I want to be on that. The posse. So they manage their own horse costs. It's not like they get a, a massive stipend each year. And so I don't know where this misconception really came from that if you call search and rescue, when we show up to help you, we're going to pass you a massive bill. I think the billing starts if you get transferred to a hospital and there is some Uh, aspect of it. Like if there's high Alpine rescue, then, oh, you'll get stuck with a helicopter fee. But I mean, one thing I want to remind people of is how many places actually have a helicopter just hanging around ready to use like I I don't I don't know of many search and rescue teams that just idly have that kind of budget (laughs) uh I think some some agencies also kind of manage their own search and rescue stuff but it's my understanding is that it is run through like if it's a national park or something like that then certain people within their uh law enforcement officers group or, or something like that wear a dual hat as search and rescue i i'm not positive on that though um i should know given what- actually i've seen that in action on the pacific crest trail oh. um All i right. worked in california and i was doing a survey on the pacific crest trail for sequoia and kings national parks and um a hiker broke their leg and so a fire helicopter um that belonged to the park service came and got them eventually because by the time they needed to get them out it was too dark for them to land so they actually had to come the next day to go get them so it does seem that the park service in some cases would have like helicopter abilities but i'd be really curious to see like if they work in conjunction with a lot of local search and rescue as well like pairing up and sharing resources and that would make sense so that is a really good question and Part of it is actually really similar to to how archaeology runs things, which that um, also I'm glad that you could fill in that that gap for me that was just kind of my supposition. Like I remember it working it this way. But uh, so whenever you have a recovery that's happening across uh, like multiple agencies, you basically have to have a lead agency. And Mm -hmm. that gets into the whole uh, incident command structure that you're trained up on if you're in fire but search and rescue uses the same thing lots of like pretty much any government agency that's involved in any kind of rescue work 
follows the incident command structure. And so you have to pick a lead agency, just like if you're, you know, working on an area that has multiple federal interests, then you have your lead agency that does all the all the coordination and then the others kind of follow suit. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I hope that made sense the way I said that. It was a little meandering. <laughs> well, it definitely yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I So I have not been able to do as much uh, with Columbia County and then I'm working on getting trained up fully with Clackamas County. I've not been able to do as much stuff with them as I would like to yet, in part because the pandemic kind of threw a wrench into a lot of the training that you need to do to be fully certified to to work on a team. So that makes sense. It's like at various points with Columbia County, um, I'm helping them work on developing a new hasty team, which that's like the the hasty team is a team that has a, a lighter pack and they trail run or like boogie out to wherever someone is and kind of do that initial assessment. So they're the quicker moving team. Uh, But that keeps getting put on hold because of the pandemic. And also, honestly, because again, I was I was gone for about five months of the summer. Um, But in general, there a lot of the training does overlap with archaeology, for example, I think, three weeks ago now, two or three weeks ago, I went out with the Clackamas team and we had an end of the year race, basically, where we were in Mount Hood National Forest and we were given a series of UTM coordinates. And there was a small piece, maybe five or six centimeters long of uh, white plastic tubing at each of these UTM coordinates. And so we had to map out like where where those were on a paper map and then come up with bearings to get to them and then pace out to that area and break into uh, break into a grid and search for the little all the little pieces of plastic and whoever managed to get their team to all I think there were 11 or 12 locations first one wow 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 and I feel like the whole uh, compass mapping and stuff is starting to be a lost art in some respects in archaeology. I know I've gotten pretty bad about relying on my Trimble and Garmin and, and whatnot. And so I love that that's a skill they're using because um, who knows when your satellites might crap out or <laughs> or your batteries die and so yeah. on. Or maybe, maybe you are the U.S. military and someone reads your map wrong and you accidentally invade a country, which happened with a training exercise earlier this year. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> oh, God. That's awful. <laughs> the worst that's happened for me is like, oops, I went from BLM to Forest Service land. <laughs> no, they like they like broke into a into a factory or like smashed out a door to a factory <laughs> that they thought was a building for a training exercise and it was not oh my god don't be that person learn how to read a compass and a map (laughs) yeah it's see even joel agrees uh so that was something that came up in in the training was that um people a couple of people were saying like yeah but you know we always have so many uh 
GIS and GPS equipment with us. Like we have little Garmin inReach minis. We have uh, larger Garmin units. We use those in an actual emergency to locate the person and like get to wherever we're going. But a couple other people on the team were quick to point out, yeah, we've been in such cold weather that those freeze up though. And then you, you have to have something to fall back on. Exactly. So you can't tell someone hey, we're really sorry, but our equipment died. So just hold tight with your hypothermia and we'll try and get you tomorrow when the sun comes up. Like that, that doesn't work. Yeah. No. Well, it's true for surveys as well. I mean, obviously less uh, critical in terms of like of, of um, levels of criticalness. Um, but yeah, it's like I've had it where the the satellites stop working or it overheats and so the whole system just crashes yeah so yeah you're totally right you need a backup yeah or navigating canyons or anything where the satellites can't reach you <laughs> there's there's many reasons why learning map and compass is a good idea as an archaeologist and i love that that is something i love this game uh that you guys did um it makes me so happy. That would be a fun exercise to to do with archaeologists as like even just training, like get a bunch of undergrads together and be like, here you go. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely it's a skill that like brushing up on it. It reminds me how to do it. Um, some of the things that are a little different in the way that search and rescue does it, because we're, we're used to being paced out at like 20 meters, maybe 40 max if we're on a really nasty slope or something. But before starting search and rescue, I knew what my pace was out to about 20 meters for search and rescue. I have to know what my pace is to about a hundred meters. And so the way that you do it oh, is wow. say you're aiming for a point that's 500 meters ahead you have someone who's in control of the map and the compass and they are the lead and then you have the rabbit and the rabbit is the person who takes the same bearing you have and they go forward until they're just at the end of your line of sight and then take a back shot at you and make sure you're in line and then everyone follows the rabbit so that's huh. kind of how you stay in line when you're trying to get to your search area instead That's of just like everyone's on the bearing and we go it's everyone stays in a line and the lead and the rabbit take you out there and then you once you're in the search area that's when you break and start a grid pattern or whatever makes sense for the search that you're doing very wow. interesting well we are at uh the end of our first segment i learned so much more about search and rescue i didn't know that i didn't know <laughs> yeah and, there, and there's so much that relates to archaeology it's great that those skills can transfer over to something that is needed and and very yes. very helpful exactly let's take a quick break and we'll be back in a moment okay did you know that we have a blog check out the women in archaeology website for a variety of blog posts as well as past episodes Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. 
Uh, welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us again for our second segment with Emily Tabor. Uh, the first segment, we talked a bit about her experience with Search and Rescue, and this segment, we are looking at some of the work that she does with Alta Heritage Foundation. I'm excited to hear all about this. It sounds like such a fascinating uh, program to begin with and a really great use of archaeology skills, even though, I mean, it's like you don't have to have them, but it sounds like a really cool way to use them. Very cool. Yeah, I think um, I was reflecting during the during the brief break about how basically a lot of the stuff that I do shows that archaeology has a lot of overlap in in other places where the skills are really useful but you wouldn't necessarily think about it just up front like with with the search and rescue stuff uh there are so many other places that we have overlap where i think we've most people after you've been in the field for a decade or so you've had at least one kind of medical emergency or medical situation that you've had to treat or manage in a remote area. I know that's happened with me a number of times. And so it's like, that's another bit of overlap that, that works really well with search and rescue that certainly the searching part and with Alta Heritage Foundation, that was, that was a need that people didn't realize wasn't being met until I think it was in 2014. 14, the, one of the really bad wildfires in, in California impacted uh, one of the people who is now in the Alta Heritage Foundation and helped create it, that they knew. And they said, well, wait a minute, we can, we can use archaeologists to help find these cremated remains, but we can't do it alone. Like, we need some additional step to help verify just what we're seeing with our eyes since we can't get it right we need we need another variable here and so that's when they reached out to some of the dog handlers in california and created this this team that's now stretched up and down the west coast so in that case just as a as a quick explanation for people who may not be familiar with it which is probably most people um Imagine that you are in an area where there's a wildfire and someone from the sheriff's office or a neighbor, someone shows up at your door and says, you have five minutes, you have to get your stuff and you have to get out of your house now. And so you, if you can, you try and grab your pets, you try and grab whatever first comes to mind. And then maybe hours or days later, you realize that you've you've left your mother's ashes on the mantle, you've left your son's ashes on your bedside table, something like that, because you just don't have time in, in a rush to grab every single thing. And so after a structure has been destroyed, a lot of the time that's one of the only things that people want back out of, out of that area before they feel like they can move on. I don't want to speak too much for other for other people who've gone through this. It's just what I've heard over and over from them. Uh, so the Alta Heritage Foundation is volunteer run. We don't charge anything. We find those people who they need to have uh, human remains recovered. So it's like maybe a cup or two of human ashes, maybe it's as much as a, a half gallon Ziploc bag of ashes. 
and that's out of a building's worth of ashes where maybe it was a multi-story building and it's collapsed and so finding that we couldn't do that without the dogs um, mm -hmm. so there's not a lot of crossover from what i have seen between different kinds of search dogs you basically get into a niche and that's where you stay i i had the pleasure a while ago of working with a dog that was trained to smell technology like that is what it does is it smells the hard drives that you have hidden in your car that's, that's what it is trained to smell so huh. the dogs in the alta heritage foundation they are trained specifically to alert on cremated human remains which is very different from a missing person search or from a recently deceased person search mm -hmm. and so the handlers take the dogs in and the dogs do their best to give uh, a medium or a strong alert on areas where they pick up that chemical combination of smells that to them says cremated human remains. Do you know, and I realize you're not a dog handler, so you might not have the information, but how much of that that they're picking up is like the human and how much of that might be um, like chemicals or anything that you use when someone passes away to you know because there are some people who like to be able to do like an open casket before oh like embalming fluid they create so they might embalm a person if they can't get um you know the the service to be as as quick as they would like it to be i know there are other times when you know it's literally two days later and embalming might not be necessary um i'm just curious about that i don't fully know about that so the, the I think that would probably be a better question for a dog handler but it is the chemical sense that they are uh that they are trained to alert on I if memory serves when within a few seconds of a person dying they start putting off a distinct chemical signature of like 127 or 129 different chemicals that is distinct to a dead human. And then uh, cremated remains have a very different one. And I I don't think, you know, I, I can't say, actually. I would be hazarding guesses. I, I don't know how much embalming or anything like that comes into it. But I know the okay. dogs, they're trained up. If they work with the Alta Heritage Foundation, they have gone through a lot of extra steps we don't just take uh volunteer canine handlers willy-nilly um so they are they are very well trained they have a very high success rate and then they just leave the visual identification to gotcha. the archaeologists i have a follow-up question with that too um so is this only remains that have been cremated prior to a wildfire that people are looking for? Or does this include also people who may, unfortunately, were not able to outrun the fire and therefore the remains were cremated because of the wildfire? Are you looking for both of those or just one or the other? We work with the Alta Heritage Foundation exclusively with the former for uh, people that okay. were cremated ahead of ahead of a fire um if someone is lost during a fire then i think that is more of 
uh, more of a task for the coroner's office and that they they manage the recovery of that in, of that individual in a very uh, in a different manner. Okay. And I also well, that makes sense. And I'm sure different temperatures create different situations. So I'm, I'm sure that makes sense in terms of what you're looking for. Yeah. And again, it's one of those things where the, the chemical signature of a person who had been cremated uh, in like 1995 or something like that, that signature to a dog is going to be very different than the signature of someone who uh, was recently deceased in the course of a fire. Okay. A quick update here. So we've learned after asking one of the handlers, it sounds like the dogs actually don't differentiate between actual accidental cremation and intentional cremation being someone who had unfortunately passed in a fire versus someone who had been cremated previously. Uh, that is mostly going to be something differentiated by the archaeologists. You are going to have very different looking remains. It's a different process where the end results are ashes that people can spread um, in a, a pseudo-homogenous material. If someone is accidentally cremated or um, unfortunately deceased in the fire or burned, um, you will likely have more... Uh, skeletal remains left compared to those who have gone through a crematorium. In addition, people who undergo cremation do not undergo embalming. But we have we have worked on properties before where people have had pets that have not been able to make it out in time, Aww. and that's heartbreaking. I, the the one. The one bit of scant comfort that I've that I've been able to to give people in those circumstances that we that we sometimes can give people in those circumstances is that by and large those pets likely will have passed out due to the smoke before mm-hmm. they are in any significant pain. Um, that mm-hmm. I have been told that before by other people. So yeah, I think that's that's one thing I wanna I wanna note since I know this is a very a more sensitive thing to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. But just in terms of the recovery, when we are working on those properties where pets have uh, pets have not been able to make it out in time, the dogs do not alert on those remains that I have ever that I've ever seen, and we have found okay. that if we know there was an animal that a homeowner or a renter was worried didn't make it out, we will ask them ahead of time, if we find animal remains, do you want us to bring those over to you? And Mm -hmm. sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no. So there have been times when we have found remains and we don't, we don't report those pet remains because the, because the person has asked that we do not. Fair enough. Is that where you find then your skills in zooarchaeology coming into play, where then you're able to identify in those types of situations? Yes, Uh, it's good for, it's very helpful for that. Um, It's also, the zooarchaeology skills are also very helpful because sometimes 
people will, the archaeologists will find an area that they think has human cremains in it, like it has some of the other hallmark signs, and then they'll pick up little white bits of, of something and say, is this, is this bone? And I can look at it and say, 100% no, that is not. That is crumbled oh, okay. plastic or that is something else. And when you're talking about fragments the size of, of a pinhead or something like that, it's very, like, we want to be able to return the right things to people. And there's no mm -hmm. guarantee, mm -hmm. but we, I do think we have a very, a very high success rate for being able to, to help people with that. You guys must provide so much solace to people in these situations where they've already lost so much that being able to find, I'm sure even anything is incredibly um, fulfilling for both you guys, I'm sure, and for the people you're helping. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely one of the most meaningful things that I've been able to do that's, that's kind of loosely connected with archaeology. I think most people want to feel like they're making a difference and helping push back against some of the some of the bad things that that just happen and mm -hmm. this is one way one way to do it and i i'm hoping that i don't misstep and misspeak on any of this alex if you ever listen to this podcast or chelsea <laughs> you let me know if i've <laughs> misrepresented something <laughs> it's not like i have an official pr hat for the Alta Heritage Foundation. <laughs> uh, but I will say that we, being a volunteer-run organization, we are entirely reliant on volunteer donations. So even if you are just starting out in archaeology or you have stumbled across this podcast and you're like, wow, I know nothing about archaeology, but I want to help with that, you can go to the Alta Heritage Foundation's website and make donations and all of those donations just go towards the PPE that we need to enter these areas that have um, like a lot of the time toxic materials that have been burned up. Uh, it helps with filing all of the, all the paperwork with outreach. It, it all goes to the foundation. We don't get any kind of like gas reimbursements or, or that kind of thing. So, so that's my pitch. I think that's great. And we will definitely um, provide the link to the organization. And so, so do they do work throughout the United States or is it primarily out West, like specifically Oregon, specifically California, et cetera? So we have uh, the California team and then the Oregon team kind of overlaps into Washington. So I'd say loosely California and the Pacific Northwest. But we sort of go on loan to uh, other other places on the West Coast when needed. Like during the during the fires last year, around Talent and uh, Ashland and Phoenix, uh, we had a lot of the California team come up to to help us with that. I uh, mm -hmm. don't know that we have any chapters in other parts of the United States. We've tried periodically to see if there's a need in Colorado with some of the fires that happen there. But mm -hmm. um, that is still an in-progress thing. Also in progress, I have 
tried periodically to reach out to different archaeologists in Australia based on some of the fire issues that they have there. Yeah. To see if that's something that they are interested in learning from or adapting as a model. Because right now it seems like the Alta Heritage Foundation is the primary group doing this kind of work. So I've reached out to to see if there's much interest in training or in starting an Alta Heritage group down there to, to help out with mm -hmm. uh, any fire issues that they encounter. And as of yet, that is still kind of in progress. But, you know, it, it mm -hmm. takes a while to communicate a lot of this stuff um, internationally and find people who have the time to devote to it. They recognize that it's important and that there's a need, but that doesn't mean that they have, say, an endless supply of grad students that they can just throw at it. It's hard to find an endless supply of grad students anyway. Good point. Very good point. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Unless you offer free beer and they just come out of the woodwork. <laughs> Pizza. Pizza too. Yes. A prime example of that was the Washington Association meetings that would happen at our regional conference. They would offer free beer if you paid uh, membership dues and went to the meeting. So there was always a bustling crowd uh, in contrast to the Organ Association who maybe had 20 people in there versus like 100 plus. Um, which, Emily, you were part of there for a little bit. Uh, yeah, for, I think, for about three or, I don't think it was fully four years, but I was one of the two student directors at large for the Association for Washington Archaeology and uh, helped get some student funding set aside. And then on and off, I am still working on uh, some sexual misconduct research. Very cool. We are wrapping up our second segment on that note then, and we will come back um, for our last segment here with Emily in just a moment. Looking for other archaeology podcasts? There are so many to choose from. Why not try Fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and archaeanimals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us again for our last segment uh, with Emily Tabor. I believe that we are going to kind of dive in and um, explore some more fun topics, I guess. <laughs> what you mean, search and rescue and all the Heritage Foundation isn't fun? <laughs> <laughs> it's a really great exploration of some of the things that we've talked about on this podcast before about alternate things that you can do with your archaeology skills. Uh, I think we've done at least one episode talking about that, whether that be looking at just other things that you can do during the winter or transferable skills. We'll link to that in the show notes. So is there anything, Emily, that you are interested in exploring with us? Uh, a little bit about if you wanted to talk about your research in Izuawark, your fishes? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there are 
some incredible, there's some incredible zooarchaeologists in, in the Pacific Northwest. And I feel like I'm, I'm pretending if I, if I put myself too firmly in, in their ranks. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I think like touching on, on something that you'd said a moment ago about uh, just overlap of archeology span with, with other skills, the things that I've talked about, they're all volunteer things. Uh, so they would not be good overwintering activities. And also they, they take a lot of, of dedication. So you can't really dip in and out of them necessarily. But for anyone who is interested in a way to give back to your community, there are a lot of ways that archaeology is really pertinent that, that you might not think of off the top of your head like for anyone who's who's done a fair bit of field work and loves the outdoors your skills would probably be really appreciated on your local county search and rescue team and since most of them have a, a hefty volunteer base like just reach out and see what their application and training process is um, if that's something that that you're keen on even just exploring um, there's there are a lot of things that you can do with archaeology that are not, well, strictly archaeology. <laughs> sure. So that's my elevator pitch to, to use archaeology for community engagement uh, and for giving back to your communities. But for fishes and zooarchaeology, I mean, I, I said at the start of the podcast that I don't get to wear that hat as often as I would like. But that's, that's okay. Um, I mean, I think most people who go to grad school recognize that the skills they get there, that's not explicitly what they will be pursuing for the rest of their lives. It's just uh, another, yeah. another billable skill that I have. And I'm thrilled when I get to do something with it. Um, yes. What did your uh, fish research entail? I'm not actually familiar with what your master's thesis was. Oh, uh, my master's thesis was looking at the fish faunal remains in a Euro-American Victorian era community just north of the Columbia River and creating a ranking system for the cost of fishes based on newspaper articles and clippings from that era. So say like, oh, it costs this many cents per pound to get this fish and that much per that fish. And then compared that to the faunal collection at, uh, at this site and use that as a way to examine socioeconomic status and class and also to look at how people were acquiring their fishes since, you know, you've you can go to the store and buy a fish or you can catch one in a creek and most of the people i know who go fishing don't catch a fish and tell themselves well i couldn't afford this in a grocery store so i better throw it back yeah so using different bits of the archaeological record to try and suss out whether or not the remains i was analyzing were from a, a home personal catch or whether they were a market purchase and you can get to some of that by butchery cuts and the parts of a fish which are represented. And that's really neat to me, like the different things you can learn from fish butchery or animal butchery in general. 
Yeah, so I'm just thinking, so I'm a bioarchaeologist um, for humans mostly, but anyone who deals with bones on site, you know, people are going to come up to you and be like, oh, what's this? Um, and I, I'm just going to come out with it. I am not keen on fish bones. Um, they're small and fiddly and annoying. So I'm <laughs> intrigued, in my opinion. Uh, I realize not everyone feels that way. Um, but I'm intrigued about like what kind of butchery marks you're talking about, because a lot of the fish bones that I've seen are so small that I don't know that I would be able to see butchery marks on them. That's a really good question. So if you think of it as a size thing, most of the time you're not going to be butchering the really small fishes. Like I have yet to see a person who has a sardine, a full sardine and says, I'm going to fillet this. Uh, <laughs> it just... Okay. So with those ones, you're you're looking at the, um, as you would with many other faunas, you're looking at which parts of the animal are present. Like, does it, does it have a head? Does it have a tail? Is it just the middle of it? And with the smaller ones, usually you have everything, or you should. Uh, so then, you know, you get into screen size and whether or not your collection methods are missing some chunk of the, of the fauna. But for the larger ones, you're talking about uh, salmon, if you're talking about the, the flat fishes, on a lot of those guys, you can see uh, butchery marks where people have tried to fillet them or where they've tried to uh, uh, remove their heads, different, different things like that. One of the bits that came up in my thesis that I thought was really, this was a lot of fun to me, which probably says a lot about me as a person. Uh, <laughs> that the there were a lot of catfish remains in this particular neighborhood and huh. there were certain ways where you could see someone had been trying to butcher the remains consistently and sometimes they would mess up and they would try again so you'd have part of a hack mark and then it's like okay it didn't work there I'm going to try and hack at it this way instead and hmm. I did think it was fascinating that with one of those repeat patterns that showed up across multiple features that were sometimes uh, rather far apart from each other. And there was a local fish butcher in the area who I think I found something that said that they would process catfishes for you if you caught catfishes or something. So I could never fully evidence this. But I wondered whether or not all of these different people were bringing their catfish there or if they were just using similar techniques because there are a lot of different ways to butcher catfishes. There's there's not a lot of uniformity in in how people have done that over the ages. So and it also makes me think of like training as far as a butcher a butcher that's training an apprentice or something. Um and having that same like technique tried over and over. Yeah. Yeah. And it's with a lot of that, you know, we can, we can only hazard guesses and it's fun to, it's fun to daydream about what all of the data could mean. But, uh, I can't, I don't think I ever fully evidenced that it was just kind of a, a fun idea that I had that I, I looked into and it, it was in the maybe pile. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> one thing that, uh, Ken Ames, I heard, I heard Dr. Ken Ames say this a couple of times. I know other, other people have heard him, had heard him say it too, 
was uh, basically amounted to you should be the most suspicious of your favorite hypothesis. That's a good one. Yes. He had a lot. He had a lot of good ones. I was curious. So you you mentioned that um, you don't get to do zooarchaeology as much as you would like these days, and is a big part of that is that so much of CRM um, tends to be survey work, and a lot of the um, bones and fragments and whatnot would more likely be found in an excavation as opposed to the ground surface. Uh it's. My impression, and this is just within the Pacific Northwest, is that most of the time faunal remains are they're encountered during uh, more significant, well, I shouldn't say more significant, um, during more invasive archaeological work. Uh, like if you're doing mm-hmm. data recovery or something like that, then you are more likely to encounter faunal remains than you are if you're just doing shovel test probes. But because of the general environment on the west side of the Cascade Range, it's, it tends to be very moist and the way that the temperatures swing back and forth combined with that moisture on their yearly cycle, it just remains do not hold up very well. So part mm-hmm. of it is just mm-hmm. that some sites have really great preservation uh, but certainly not all of them do. And so I'll, I think maybe five or six times a year, a faunal collection will cross my desk. And a lot of the time it is a, a small number of uh, highly fragmented remains where sometimes you can only get it to the level of like, this is a medium mammal, that is a large mammal. And that's about the, the best you can do because they just, even the really robust remains, they just don't always have a lot of staying powder in in a moist environment. So I think it's more sure. that mm-hmm. than it is um, survey work versus anything else. We do occasionally have other companies who do not have a zooarchaeologist on hand reach out and ask if they can subcontract me to do some analyses for them. Uh, so that happens periodically, but most of the time when you're doing faunal remains, like it seems to me like those come out of sites that are being examined through uh, data recovery or testing. And mm-hmm. then also the project is more likely to have the budget to support a faunal analysis and a faunal write-up. Like I actually do a fair amount of digging in, in CRM. I, I kind of wish that we got to do more surface survey work, but uh, because of, like, it, it doesn't seem to be reliant just on survey versus, like, surface survey versus subsurface. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Has there been anything that's come across your desk lately or even in the last few years that you're like, I am so happy they sent this to me? Because <laughs> you're just like, oh, this, this, Package made my day. Uh, earlier, was this this year or last year? I, I forget. Uh, another firm in the area did subcontract AAR for, that's, that's the company I work for, is Applied Archaeological Research Incorporated. Uh, so we were subcontracted so that I could do some fish faunal analyses 
for a site that was adjacent to the site that I used for my thesis research. So for me, that was really, that was a lot of fun because A, these are species that I already have a lot of intimacy with and I already know them very well. And B, even if this didn't come out in any of the uh, like gray literature reports we were working on or anything, in the back of my head, I could still be pondering about, oh, well, how does this compare to what I was looking at? And are these trends the same or are they different? Uh, mm-hmm. So, I mean, that, that kind of thing where you get to, I, I always love any work where I get to ask questions. And mm-hmm. yeah. sometimes with the, with the small amounts of faunal remains that are mostly medium to large mammals and they're very fragmented, there aren't as many questions you can ask about that stuff. They are still there, but they, they, don't, uh, they don't shine as brightly at first glance as, as you might think. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, and unfortunately, sometimes with CRM, I feel you know, if you don't have the funding, like there isn't that drive to ask those questions. True. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, with, with good firms, a lot of the time, if they feel that the scholarship needs to be done, then they will, they will find a way to, to put the bill. I'm not saying that it necessarily should be that way. It is one way to try and make sure that that good scholarship is still conducted when you have, say, a, a client who is balking at the idea that they need to pay for any of this to get done at all. That being its yeah. own separate can of worms. But True. Uh, sure. <laughs> that's something that, I mean, of, of course, that that impacts pretty much every aspect of, of archaeology. Where, wherever you are, you, you have to look at what you have the funding to feasibly accomplish. Yeah. Well, and an interesting thing on that note that I came across um, somewhat recently is that we had a um, private landowner who had us go out for uh, an estimate because there was a a known midden site on their property um, along the coast. And so we did a couple of test pits just to get an idea of what was there. And while this site was well known and had been documented very early no one's ever done a study of it so even just those couple of test pits we were able to do a little bit of an analysis and get some idea which was even only for like a week's worth of work far more valuable than anything that had been done previously um and it may not ever be done again uh, but <laughs> That makes what you were just saying reminded me of that, like, well, we have an opportunity here. Let's take advantage of it, stick a couple of probes in and see what we can get um, from this. So, and some of it was just being able to let the landowner know, be like, okay, well, if you do, you know, decide to build here, this is what's going to need to be done. Um, And giving them a a very uh, fully fleshed out idea of what that would actually look like in costs. So, (laughs) he's very opinionated today. He is. So, I think that about wraps up uh, our segment. I think I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on, Emily. This was really cool. I've never heard this much about like 
search and rescue. It's like we all hear about it in the news and stuff, but just your volunteer work with these these different programs, it sounds absolutely fascinating. I think it highlights how there's different opportunities out there, if not for work, for really, really great volunteer opportunities that can expand one's skills and then you're helping out people. I think it's great. So seriously, thank you so much for sharing the information with us. Yeah, no, no worries. I'm, I'm happy to. And I will say that I, I cannot realistically paint myself up as, as an expert with, with any of those things, I'm, I'm doing my, my best and I'm invested in them, but it's, it's always a learning process. And there's whatever you're doing, there's always something, something more that you can learn, some new thing you can try, some new way to be engaged. Um, one, I guess one thing for any, any people who are newer to archaeology that I will leave you with as a new thing to learn that ties into zooarchaeology please please do not lick things to figure out if they are bones <laughs> please don't do it like if you're that if you're that uncertain ask the people around you don't stick things in your mouth it's not, it's not don't good. lick the archaeology <laughs> most certainly do not lick the archaeology well, thank you again, Emily, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And um, just a quick uh, recap. So Alta Heritage Foundation will get uh, some links in the show notes. Uh, any other resources that you want to make sure that we get out? Uh, if you are new to archaeology in a region, try and, and reach out to any of the any of the local associations. Like I think in this in this podcast it, in passing we've mentioned the um association of oregon archaeologists the washington uh the association for washington archaeology uh like find whatever your state group is and that's a great way to, to see what research is being done and to find out what role you can start to play in in the community that you want to work in so that's uh, just a great way to to make sure that you're keyed into things exactly that's awesome that's really great advice all right well thanks again for joining us and uh chelsea and emily thank you for coming on as well and uh help flesh out our panel uh for listeners if you would like to hear more from us send us an email at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com you can also find us on twitter at Women Archies and Facebook. Uh, you can also, you can become a patron on Patreon and we will have a link for all that below in the show notes. So thanks again for listening and have a fantastic day. Stay healthy, everybody. <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye.